I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Yeah. The Diving Deep EDU podcast aims to have thought-provoking conversations that help listeners dive deeper into educational practices with a focus on teacher retention, recruitment, and burnout. Subscribe to the Diving Deep EDU podcast newsletter to get more information about this podcast and these topics. A link is in the show notes. Our guest today is Chad Alderman. Chad is the policy director of the Edumonics Lab at Georgetown University, where he studies school finance and teacher labor markets. He's the founding editor of teacherpensions.org, and his work has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Chad, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. I want to start this conversation off by you telling me a little bit more about the work you're currently doing. Yeah, thanks for having me. So as you said in your introduction, I work at the Edgenomics Lab at Georgetown University. We are a research center and we work on the intersection of education and economics, school finance, particularly focused on how districts spend their money. So once they receive money from the federal government, state government, local government, how do they spend that money in terms of uh, teacher salaries, how many mm-hmm. staff they have, et cetera. That's our high level. We have a certificate in education finance program where we help people go through and learn the basics of school finance as well as how to use money strategically and wisely. And then I particularly do a lot of research and writing about uh, school finance as well as a particular focus on the teacher labor market. How many mm-hmm. teachers are there? How many are leaving in any given year? How much are they paid in base salaries? How do their benefits look like? Um, how mm-hmm. has all that changed over time? Yeah, that's interesting and it's important work, I'm sure, especially with the labor market today and the way the finances are happening. I'd like to get some of your insights. Some, we're not going to be able to get all of your insights into all of those deep topics today, but I want to start off by talking about the teacher labor markets, right? And I want to get your insight into a couple aspects, but I'm going to focus it on one aspect to start. So I've heard different takes. I've heard the one take on the one side, and I know we're, we can be somewhere in the middle, right? And, and we're not always in these extremes, but I've, I hear one take that says we are in a teacher shortage as a result of the pandemic, right? We need to fix it. it we're in a teacher shortage and it's the result of that. And then I've also heard the other side of the argument that says we're not actually in a teacher shortage at all. So I think those are the two on the the opposite ends of the spectrum. And I'd really like to get your insight into that. Break this down for us. What is going on currently with the teacher labor market? Yeah, it's a complicated environment and there are a lot of different Mm -hmm. factors at play. At the high level, I will say, and I have a piece coming out on this shortly, showing that we've actually gained the number of teachers over the last couple of years. We have more teachers than we did leading into the pandemic. Meanwhile, we're serving fewer students. So uh, most states have been reducing their teacher-student ratios. So there are more adults, more teachers in schools on a per-student basis than there were pre-pandemic. 
Hmm. So that's true. In that sense, there's not a shortage in that sense. Uh, but schools would like to hire even more. So in terms of their sure. job openings, they have a lot of job openings that are available that they're unable to fill. And again, that varies based on the context. Different communities have more. Some are fully staffed. Others would like to do even more. Yeah. And uh, it also varies based on the subject areas. So we've had historically for a long time, we've had shortage areas in STEM subjects and mm-hmm. special ed subjects. Um, foreign language, early childhood, they're all hard to staff roles. And those have been exacerbated during the pandemic. On top of that, we also have a supply challenge. So we were preparing about 20 to 30% more teachers about a decade ago than we are today. So people, there are fewer people coming out of teacher preparation programs that are being prepared to teach. Uh, So the supply of teachers is smaller and the market is tighter than it uh, has been for many years. Um, so all, all these factors are at play. It's hard to answer yes or no. It's, there's a lot of black and white, and we have to keep all these factors in mind at the same time. Yeah, I appreciate that. Before we get a little bit further, give us a little bit for our listeners that might want to check out this article when it comes out, where would they be able to find this? Yeah, it's a column that will appear in the 74 million. I don't have a release date yet, but... Okay. Uh, should be out in the next week or two. And by the time this airs, it might be out. I, so I can, I'll send you the link for that. Okay, great. And if it's out, I'll link it. If not, you know, check out 74 million. And I think that's where I found your work. Uh, different articles was on that site. And that's how we got connected. A little bit of follow up. So speak to this, right? There's a tightening of the market, but may, I'm just going to paraphrase this and correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, but maybe there's not a shortage across the country. But now I want you to speak to uh, the school district that here that and they might hear the data, but then they also say, wait, hold up a second, Chad. Like, you know, we have a job opening for ELA. That's a, that's not a high demand position. And five years ago, I got 30, you know, applications. And this year it's been out for a week and I have one. So what does that show about the labor market? Yeah. Lots of things going on there. Again, I think (laughs) there is a uh, tightening of the market. There are fewer people going into teaching than there were five years ago, 10 years ago. So the supply is definitely down. The other factors to to consider are quality. So I mentioned at the outset Hmm. in terms of quantity, where we've been mostly talking about the supply of teachers and the number of teachers. That doesn't necessarily get into uh, things about quality. And I think a lot of concerns we hear from district leaders is they don't have the same choices that they would like to have. And so Hmm. maybe they're not making the hires that they would prefer to hire, whether that's because they just don't have as many people and many applicants, maybe they're sort of going down their list farther to, to hire. Um, so I think, I think all those things are at play for, for districts right now. When we talk about supply, you said we're, we have decreased about 20 to 30% in people going into the teaching profession versus maybe 10 years ago. And I know this data uh, changes from state to state. I'm in Pennsylvania and I've seen these numbers. I think they've gone down substantially. I don't have the numbers in front of me. At what point, you know, do we go beyond a tightening of the labor market and maybe districts don't have the choice they once had to a shortage? Like at what point does that happen and how do we know when we're at that point? Uh, Yeah, it's a good definitional thing. And I think that's part of the reason that there's this sort of disconnect in what Mm. people are talking about the national context of 
some people like district leaders are saying, well, we have uh, fewer applicants for positions than we once did. Uh, whereas someone could look at the overall numbers and say, well, districts are hiring. They have more teachers than they ever had on mm-hmm. a per-student basis. So those two things are not compatible unless yep. you start digging into this definition of a shortage and it starts getting this question about uh, sort of like district choice and hmm. applicants and going to their less preferred option or just having fewer choices than they did in the past. There's also a surge in teachers coming through either non-traditional routes or getting hmm. emergency credentials. Again, that could be a, a sign of the shortage. Uh, it depends on how you look at it. There's some other work on this that's trying to quantify all of these and looking at the different ways you might define shortage. Uh, but I think that's all relevant of, is it the number of teachers? Is it the mm-hmm. number of applicants? Is it something else about the quality of those applicants? It's, it's mm-hmm. hard to pin down exactly what we mean by shortage. So if we're a district and we have limited quantity, but we want that high quality, what can a district do to attract the best quality candidate as a teacher. And also, I guess this ties into the idea of keeping the good quality candidate or the good quality teacher. What can districts do to help solve this problem? Yeah. Again, the the word quality is hard to define mm-hmm. so well either, but uh, yeah. a couple things that will say. One is that the research suggests that early hires tend to be higher quality in the sense of they come from more elite colleges, they have higher GPAs at those schools, they have more job offers once they apply. So if districts want to hire quality, they need to find a way to make their job listings early in the spring and start making offers early. Um, The later that the the districts are making their hires, those teachers tend to not stick around as long, particularly Hmm. late hires. So if they're coming in after the school year started, they're coming into a more chaotic situation for being honest. And so they're, they're more likely to leave. Those Hmm. teachers tend to be less qualified in the sense that they come from less elite colleges. uh, They have lower GPAs and they have fewer offers for different Hmm. teaching roles. Um, So, the hiring timeline, I think, is one thing that districts yeah. can can manage, and that requires the districts to think about their supply, like how many people they will need in what roles, and do it earlier on in the year. Some things they can sort of predict of turnover. Some things they might have to induce teachers to tell them early on that, yeah. hey, I'm going to retire, or mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to move, or I have a family situation. So there are districts that have rearranged their incentive structures to offer teachers some financial, small financial incentives to give them early heads up as opposed to waiting until the summer to to make their decisions. So timeline is one big one. Um, And then compensation is another one that Mm. uh, I think in education we don't do enough around of using compensation to shape people's behavior. And on the hiring side, that means things like recruitment incentives, uh, early hiring bonuses, sometimes moving or just an, a signing bonus that can feel like a moving bonus to, mm. to teachers, and particularly uh, targeting those to the problem areas. So if a district is having shortages year after year in a certain subject or in a certain school, making sure that 
they're using financial compensation to fill those spots. And so if you, if you've, as a district leader have trouble filling your special ed area, you may want to consider a bonus for a new special ed hire because it's so hard to staff and particularly challenging year after year. And, and I'll say one last thing about this is in education, we sometimes don't like to talk about money. We're, mm-hmm. We don't do this for the money or to get rich, yeah. but teachers are still human. They still need to pay their mortgage or their mm-hmm. childcare and money can change people's behaviors. So we've seen in the research space, particularly when financial incentives are clear and upfront mm. and permanent, people tend to will change their behavior accordingly, particularly on the recruitment or the retention side. So I think I think districts have more leeway on those types of offerings than, than sometimes they, they are willing to do. Yeah, let's dive into that compensation piece, because I'm sure that's something that you and your team uh, think about and study in greater detail than many of our listeners do. So it'd be interesting to get your take on it. If we could uh, talk a little bit more specifically about the compensation. So if I'm a school district and I want to keep teachers, I want to get teachers, I'm going to create some sort of compensation for those teachers. But that could look, and I'm sure you've studied this, that could look very different based on different districts. There's many ways to do compensation for employees. What's a good example that you've seen districts do to either recruit or retain their staff? Like you mentioned it uh, previously, not all compensation looks the same. What's a really good example of compensation to get teachers? One thing, I'll, I'll start by saying that in education, we have been reluctant to tailor our strategies to our problem areas. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean that we treat teachers interchangeably. We have a single yep. salary schedule and yep. <laughs> hiring looks the same. Compensation looks the same across different roles. Meanwhile, we have all this data that some schools are harder to staff and some mm-hmm. roles are harder to fill and keep people in. And so I, I think compensation can be used to to address those problems. And the ways that I have seen do it well are, again, predictive and clear at the outset Mm. of here's the amount of money we're going to give you as a teacher to come into our district, and here's the salary schedule. Um, We haven't talked about compensation on the quality front. There are some districts that do that. But I think front-loading salaries makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of uh, teacher compensation is really back-loaded. And Mm -hmm. so- I've seen districts, salary schedules can look very different across the country. I've done a project on this, looking at those. And some of, uh, are just linear. They have basically the same dollar raise every year for the entire yeah. teacher's career. Some are more front-loaded, if you think of like a, a steep ramp. So they ramp up in the first eight or 10 years, and then they basically flatten out. Uh, I think those types of ramps are the most promising, particularly because teacher salary right now in in the average district is fairly backloaded. And yet we have much higher turnover in the early years. So a ramp makes a lot of sense to say, these are the people we want to change their behavior. And these are our problem areas for turnover rates. So that would be a, a good place to put compensation. And then similarly on extra compensation for hard to staff schools and subjects mm-hmm. and whether that's a flat dollar amount. Um, the other thing is, so giving a predictive dollar amount on that, I think is, is really valuable. Like what do you mean by that? Yeah. So um, 
here's a great example. Uh, one of my favorites I use right now is Hawaii as a, as a state. It's one school district. They had a problem with their special ed teachers. They were not able to retain them. And so what they did was they said, all special ed teachers in our district will get a $10,000 extra compensation uh, the for every year that they stay. They saw much higher retention rates after they put <laughs> yeah. them in place. Well, yeah, which makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> uh, it's just showing appreciation. It's showing that special ed is a harder job than, mm-hmm. than non-special ed. And so um, if those are problem areas, whatever that is for the district, hmm. being clear about the needs and using money to, to target them. So what would you say to a district, right? A public school district. And they're like, Chad, we can't do that. Right. We have a thousand teachers. They're in a union. You know, we, we got to give everyone the same. We can't give math teachers at one school that where they can't hire. And we just can't do that. It's too complicated. Right. It, we That's not how we've done it. That's not how we're going to do it. What would you say to them? Well, one thing I would say is that compensation is one of the ways to combat these shortages. Uh, so if we take compensation off the table, then we're sort of saying we may just keep accepting them year after year. Mm. And to me, that that that's not acceptable. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I encourage it. And then people will say, well, it might not be effective. And again, it, it goes back to this the research suggests that if it's predictable, if it's knowable, if yeah. it's substantial enough. So if you're offering $500, that may not be enough <laughs> That's not to change people's behavior. Exactly. Like you have to think of something that actually means something that would mm-hmm. change people's sort of decision points in their behavior. Yeah. Um, so whether that's a couple thousand, 5,000, 10,000. Yeah. And then the other thing I hear sometimes districts will say is, well, we, we can't afford that. Uh, mm. But Remember, it costs money to recruit and retrain a new teacher, and some estimates have put those do- those costs at twenty thousand dollars to recruit and ret- oh, wow. retrain a new teacher. So, if you can spend five thousand to keep one teacher, that's better than spending twenty thousand to hire someone if they leave. So there there might be actually be a savings there. I think we can all agree that it's better to keep the teachers we want that are already in the profession mm-hmm. than trying to have a continuous cycle because that that churn is not good for schools. It's not mm-hmm. good for kids either. Yeah, thanks for speaking to that and for all of your research around these ideas and these topics, especially around uh, compensation and the labor markets. What are some other areas? Yeah, you know, I know you probably have a number of them, but what's another area? or two that are very important when we're thinking about recruitment and retaining teachers in different school districts across the country? I spend a lot of time talking about compensation, partly because not that many districts are using it as a strategy. Mm-hmm. And it seems like something they can control. I mean, they, they set the salary schedule, they set compensation. Yep. So it's, it's within their control and it's something they can do. Like they know mm-hmm. how to pay people because they already <laughs> are paying people. Um, <laughs> When you ask teachers why they leave, compensation is not usually their top Mm. item. I mean, compensation at the margins can change their behavior, but uh, they often say it's working conditions. But working conditions is not like just a unit, a lever that a district controls. There's other factors there. And teachers may leave because they don't um, resonate with their leadership at the school. The principal is not clicking with them. Um, and so mm-hmm. that relationship is part of it. So from a district level, they can work on their principles. They can hold their principles accountable for how well they're doing on retaining staff. So that's that's one other lever. And then um, the other lever that I think is really promising right now is there's 
a movement to change the teacher workday and to oh. create new teacher roles, like master and mentor teacher roles, so that mm. it's not just a teacher goes into their one single classroom and they're off by themselves and every teacher is doing that. Th these types of work um, creates different roles. So they're more like working in a team and they have mm. coaches that help individual yep. teachers. And then young teachers can grow into those coaching roles mm -hmm. over time. A couple particular examples I'll give. One is called the Opportunity Culture, started out of North Carolina and now has a couple hundred schools across oh, wow. uh, states, mainly in the South uh, East, of schools that are rethinking the teacher workday. The other one that's been around for a couple decades now is called the Teacher Advancement Project. And they work on um, extra pay for teachers that take master and mentor teachership roles. They have to uh, have evaluations, high quality evaluations to identify the people to fill those roles. Um, they do things on the coaching aspects as well. Mm -hmm. and so those are just two examples. There are others out there of changing the teacher work role and career mm. ladder. I think those are promising. And some of the evidence behind those models suggests that teachers like them. They like working in a team. Yep. They can yep. see a pathway forward where they don't have to leave the classroom or don't have yep. to stop working with kids. Um, so, and, and it gives them more flexibility too. So if they have a team, they're not solely dependent on mm -hmm. leading a classroom all day, every day. They can, yeah. you know, go to a doctor's appointment and, and school mm -hmm. doesn't have to come to a grind, grind to a halt. My sister just started teaching in Delaware and she's in an example, kind of what you're talking about. There's two people in the classroom and they team teach and you have a mentor teacher and then you have my sister who is certified. She's gone through all the certification, student teaching, everything. She's a teacher, but she's with that person and they're team teaching for the foreseeable future. Like for this year, <laughs> She started last year and for this year and maybe into next year, like we don't know how long that will go. They might keep it going, you know, for however long they can afford it. And for her, that's made a world of a difference uh, for her as a first year teacher. She can have some guidance from the other teacher. The teacher could have some of these new ideas with her and they can be together throughout the day. But one person takes the lead on one lesson. The other one takes the lead on the other lesson. They don't leave like to go to the teacher lounge and just uh -huh. chill. Uh -huh. um, you know, they're working together. And I think it's it's helpful for her and it's helpful for the students. And one thing I asked her and she didn't know, but I'm asking, I want to ask you, like, how would districts afford this? Because they're paying in that situation, two teachers to be in one classroom. And there's a couple of those classrooms throughout the school. Not every classroom is like that. They pick it specifically for high needs classrooms. How are districts affording this? Yeah. So I've, I've talked to the Opportunity Culture and the Teacher Advancement Project folks. Uh, and what they've said is there is a transition period where they need to plan and figure out how mm -hmm. it will work, but they are able to make their staffing arrangements with their existing ongoing operating budgets. And some of there are trade-offs there. Uh, they might be, so in the example you give with in the, the two classroom, the team teaching, there might be more students per classroom, or yeah. maybe they have a different type of staffing roles with uh, fewer instructional aids, whatever that might be, oh, they're able to come up with a way to, to make it work and to have these 
team-based approaches um, as opposed to sort of teachers operating in silos. Yeah. So they're sort of taking a step back and they're looking at their budget and then they're seeing if they want to allocate different monies to different areas and maybe they get rid of this and add, you know, a teacher. And if it goes well, you know, then they can advocate to get more funding and then they can go that way. So that's that's interesting. I think a lot of times, you know, I'm in public education, we feel like we're sort of stuck in doing things the same way they have been done. And I think what you're bringing to our conversation, what you're bringing to the surface is that things could be done differently. Things could be done differently with compensation. Things could be done differently with the way that the teaching is occurring through these examples that you're bringing up, like opportunity culture and teacher advancement. And that's interesting to me and it's exciting and invigorating because we're looking at the problem and trying to innovate around it. Before we move on any further, I wanted to ask a little, one more question about uh, working conditions. So I know that that's a big deal. And I also appreciate that you were saying teachers might say it's working conditions and they do say working conditions is why they're leaving. But compensation might still be a part of that working condition. So even though they might not voice that as the as one of the things that's part of it. But as we think about working conditions, what's one aspect of working conditions that sort of rises to the surface uh, that's important to teachers? Uh, there's a lot there. <laughs> uh, it's it's hard to unpack. And so if one teacher says working conditions, they might mean something different than someone exactly. else's thing. Um, I think some of it. Right now, in particular, uh, there's a lot of stories out there about student discipline problems and just the transition from uh, over the last couple of years of we went fully virtual and then mm-hmm. we we're back in person or hybrid. And uh, so the mm-hmm. expectations are different. Also heard a lot about parental pressures over the last mm-hmm. few years and how that's working out. And um, I think that makes it harder to be a teacher. And then just like pre-pandemic like baseline is the relationships or sort of isolation of being a teacher Mm. and lack of lack of relationships some teachers will say it's about autonomy and the choices they're able to make in their classroom whether that's curriculum or other sorts of practices that they're uh, able to implement and then uh, other people will will think of the relationship they have with their building lead and Mm. there's this saying that people don't quit jobs they quit bosses and (laughs) that's just a general saying that people say in the private sector but i think it's true in education too of Mm. uh, teachers if they don't click with their principal are are not going to stay there because they don't feel motivated they uh, maybe don't get good feedback on what they're doing so uh, I think that relationship, that the teacher-principal relationship is really important. Now, how do you reconcile the idea that teachers sort of want autonomy, right? And I, I go into different teachers, you know, rooms, you know, across a district of like a thousand people. I'm in different rooms and teachers want autonomy. Like sometimes I go into a room and they give me that look like, you better get out because I don't <laughs> want you in here. But then you brought up the great example of the power of team teaching, how that can invigorate a teacher and keep them in the profession. So like, how do we reconcile those two like realities that teachers in some sense, you know, might look at you like I'm closing my door. This is my domain. But then when we give them, you know, another person to have this relationship and this collaboration, it's sort of like, you know, sets them up for future success. How do you interact with both of those realities? The word autonomy is similar to we've had discussions about things like the words like shortage. There's lots of definitions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A couple things (laughs) I would say there. One, all teachers will vary. There's lots of different uh, opinions Mm -hmm. on what 
autonomy means to them and how much of it they want. The examples I gave earlier, like Opportunity Culture and the Teacher Advancement Project, they only go into schools when a majority of teachers are on board. Hmm. And the Teacher Advancement Project in, in particular has, they used to, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to require a vote of teachers to say, hey, we, we want to adopt this model. It's something that we want to do. Oh, wow. And I think that is part of it, of getting the whole or the large majority of the team on board with mm. whatever direction the school leader or the, maybe the district leader wants to take. Uh, it may not be for everyone, but yeah. the people who do go into those roles with the team teaching, they tend to like them. And maybe it's mm -hmm. just that it's fulfilling their own desires. So maybe there's some sort of uh, natural happiness there. Uh, but uh, so it is a, a balance between what people want and uh, what they enjoy doing with their day-to-day -day work lives. Chad, this has been a blast. It is time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? Uh, we've touched on a lot today. I think <laughs> Uh, this nuance, this notion that we can do different things, whether that's uh, compensation, mm -hmm. whether that's reimagining the teacher workday, I'm optimistic that we'll see more of that going forward. Yeah. Um, it, it has been growing in in number of schools that are reconsidering the teacher workday, and I think that is tied into some of these conversations about autonomy and compensation and mm -hmm. evaluation and and also like the pipeline of getting into the profession. So I am optimistic mm. about all those developments. And I guess that's that's the final word I'll leave you with. Yeah, thanks for that optimism. Before we end, who do you want to give a shout out to? I've given a shout out to Opportunity Culture and Teacher Advancement Project. Uh, the other, I'll give a shout out to a couple of researchers on teacher shortage and teacher compensation that I really enjoy. One is uh, Dan Goldaber uh, out at the University of Washington Bothell. Uh, he does great work on teacher labor markets and how many people and sort of the turnover and compensation in Washington state. Uh, the other person that I think your listeners might enjoy is Matthew Kraft, uh, mm -hmm. based out of Brown University. Yeah. And he's done a lot of work on sort of the state of the teacher profession and all the changes that have been, been going on around around the teacher's workforce. Chad, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and all of your insight. Listeners, thank you for joining us on the Diving Deep EDU podcast. If you liked this episode, subscribe, rate, review, and share it out. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. 